hello. This is Lori and Tori coming to you from the haunted corners of New England, and you're listening to the Something Wicked podcast, the show that delves deep into the topics of true crime, haunted histories, and all things paranormal. Dedicated to those that love to know all the spoopy and gruesome details about psycho serial killers, ghastly ghouls, and creepy cryptids with tales to make you sleep with the lights on. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the West Memphis Three. I have been an avid follower of this case for over a decade, and it's one of the most infuriating, brutal, and infamous cases of whodunit that I have ever heard of. This one took me a long time to compile the research. I'm talking police files, Emmy reports, court and interrogation transcripts. It was excruciating, which is one of the reasons it took me a while to get back to you guys. So sorry for that, but this will be a two or three parter. I would say it depends on how much chit chat and what the fuck moments your girls get up to because there's going to be tons when it comes to this case. Well, yeah. You thought the Jean Benet case was a trip? Well, buckle up, kids, and let's get it. Hello and welcome back to the show and for those of you new to the podcast I'll say thanks for tuning in. As we said in the intro we're going to be talking about the West Memphis Three or as others may know it Robin Hood Hills Murders. Now this happened back in 1993 and it is still unsolved today. The basic breakdown of it is that there were three eight-year-old boys that were killed in West Memphis Arkansas and three teenage boys were dragged through this horrific high-profile court case and convicted of the boys murders. There has been much debate on whether they committed this crime and if there was a possibility of others that may have been involved. As you know, I try to stay as unbiased as possible. I do have my own opinions on anything I cover, but that's just that, my opinion. I cover all bases, good and bad, and leave it ultimately up to the evidence and the facts that I find. So for the first part, we're going to cover the crime itself and the breakdown of it leading up to and into the trials and convictions and the aftermath of it all. Then we'll go over timelines, theories, and some juicy tidbits that were never made public during the active case in the next episode. I will put a disclaimer on this episode. It is a brutal case that goes into graphic detail of what happened to the victims, and we've got a lot of ground to cover, and I am thoroughly looking forward to getting into every nook and cranny with you guys to see if your girls and all of you my lovelies can maybe even come up with a definitive answer to help crack this case once and for all and here we go On a warm, sunny May day, three eight-year-old boys set off on a bike ride around their hometown of West Memphis, Arkansas. The next afternoon, their bruised and mutilated, hog-tied naked bodies were pulled from a stream, setting off an all-out effort to find their murderers. Within a month, investigators were convinced they had found their killers. Three out of the mainstream teenagers who would become known as the West Memphis Three. 
The convictions and court battles that followed provide a cautionary tale for police and prosecutors too sure of their instincts and too quick to rely on the questionable evidence that supports them. About 8 p.m. on May 5, 1993, the West Memphis Police Department received a call from John Mark Byers reporting that his son, Christopher Byers, was missing. Byers and his wife, Melissa, told a patrol officer that Chris had been last seen about 5.30 working in the yard. Within the next 90 minutes, police responded to two more calls from worried parents. Dana Moore said she saw her son, Michael, riding off on bikes with two friends around 6 o'clock, but he never made it back for dinner. Pamela Hobbs said she hadn't seen her son, Stevie Branch, since he left for school. News of the three missing eight-year-old boys led to a search of a mosquito-infested four-acre woods near Interstate 40, where neighborhood children would sometimes play. The search of the woods, called Robin Hood Hills, turned up nothing, at least that night. The next morning, Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell announced he would be heading up the search for the missing boys. In the early afternoon, Steve Jones, a juvenile officer, spotted a black tennis shoe floating in the water of a ditch in the Robin Hood Hills, near where the woods bordered the Blue Beacon car wash. Fifteen minutes later, Sergeant Mike Allen of the West Memphis Police Department pulled the naked body of a child to the banks of the ditch, and yellow crime tape went up around the area. So what happened was, Detective Allen was trying to get down into the water to get the shoe. He slid down the hill and got his foot stuck under the mud on what he thought was a thick tree branch. And the other officer was like, what's wrong? And Allen said, I think I'm stuck. And when he went to pull his foot up, the body of Michael Moore came with it. Within an hour, police recovered two more bodies of children. Both were naked, with wrists bound to ankles with shoelaces. The body of one of the boys, identified as that of Chris Byers, was found with his scrotum gone and his penis skinned. Jesus fuck. Gitchell walked to the edge of the woods, where a large crowd had gathered, to report the news of their discovery. Upon hearing the news, Terry Hobbs, the stepfather of Stevie Branch, fell to the ground and wept. And Pam just lost her shit. Yeah. There is a portion in um, the documentaries that I'm going to be going over sometime later where she hears the news of Stevie being found and she just collapses to the ground and has a full mental breakdown. I would too. Like, it made me cry. It was heartbreaking. Yeah. Soon after the bodies were moved from Robin Hood Hills, rumors began circulating that the killings might have been the work of devil worshippers. Oh God. Inspector Gitchell did nothing to squelch the rumors when he told reporters that his department was investigating the possibility that the murders were connected with cult activity. The West Memphis Police Department even assigned the case number 9305-0666 oh, to the murder file. Oh my god. Yep, they did that on purpose. Of course they did. On May 7th, Steve Jones, the juvenile officer who first discovered the bodies, interviewed a troubled local teenager, Damien Eccles, who had been under the watchful eye of another juvenile officer, Jerry Driver, for some time. Eccles was a 17-year-old dropout with a history of psychiatric problems, including major depression. Eccles wrote dark poems, dressed mostly in black, wore long hair, had a tattoo on his upper arm, and was a self-described Wiccan. In the previous couple of years, Eccles allegedly had threatened his former girlfriend and the boy she was then dating, as well as his father. During part of several months' stay with his mother in Oregon in 1992, Eccles had been admitted to a psychiatric ward and placed under suicide watch. 
Returning to Arkansas in the fall, Eccles briefly entered a juvenile detention center before being transferred to a psychiatric hospital in Little Rock after biting and attempting to suck the blood of the from the arm of another detainee. Following his release from the Little Rock Hospital, Eccles returned to West Memphis, where he met regularly with a social worker and a mental health center. The social worker reported in her notes that Eccles told her he might become another Charles Manson or Ted Bundy. Oh, jeez. Which was complete bullshit. Yeah. Jerry Driver's knowledge of Eccles convinced him that Damien might have a lot to do with the murders of Chris Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch, and he pushed his suspicions with members of the West Memphis Police Department. So what happened with that, essentially, is the police showed up uh, to Driver's office, and... What happened was, which I understand why the police did this, because this is typical police work. They went to his office and asked if there was anyone that he was seeing that showed signs that could commit these types of things. And he gave him a list of his clients and he mentioned Damien, Mm -hmm. which being in the Bible Belt, you're seeing this weird kid (laughs) talking all this shit about darkness and satan and all this other stuff of course it's gonna freak you out the cops already think it's a cult killing so they're gonna zero in on this yeah, kid they're, they're just gonna go straight you know this kid. it started out with typical professional police work that you would follow and then just fell straight into yeah. fucking bias Mm-hmm. Police questioned Eccles about the Robin Hood Hills murders three separate times between May 7th and May 10th, twice at the trailer park where he lived and once at the police station. Eccles told investigators he had never heard of the three boys and that the person who committed the murders was obviously sick. He said he spent the evening on May 5th at home with his mother talking on the phone with two girlfriends in Memphis. In his notes of the police station interview, Lieutenant James Sunbury's report stated, the killer is probably someone local that won't even run. He noted that Eccles, quote, likes to read books by Stephen King and has evil across his left knuckles. Oh my God. Eccles willingly took a polygraph test. The administering officer concluded that Eccles recorded significant responses indicative of deception. In addition to Eccles, investigators focused their attention on Jason Baldwin, a friend of Damien's who also had evil inked across his left knuckles. Like Eccles, Baldwin denied any involvement in the killings, but detectives on the case increasingly thought otherwise. Investigations might have stalled were it not for the work of the local waitress named Vicki Hutchison. Hutchison told police she suspected the killings were cult-related and that she was willing to play detective. She believed that her connection with a 17-year-old neighbor, Jesse Miss Kelly, who sometimes babysat her children and mowed her yard, might provide an opportunity for her to explore the secret life of Damien Eccles. Hutchison told authorities that Miss Kelly, who was mildly mentally retarded, had told her about Eccles, his friend who drank blood and stuff. <sighs> with the blessing of the West Memphis Police Department, Hutchison asked Miss Kelly to arrange an introduction to Damien, who she said she would like to go out with. Jesse agreed and shortly thereafter brought Damien over to Hutchison's house and had made introductions. What exactly happened between Hutchison and Eccles became clear only years later, but for the benefit of local law enforcement authorities, Vicky hatched quite a tale. She told investigators that on the night of May 19th, she and Jesse were driven by Damien in a red Ford Escort, odd given that Eccles had no car and was never once known to have driven one, to an Espat, a gathering of witches. In a field outside of town where she encountered ten young people, each with faces and arms painted black, stripping off their clothes and touching each other. 
She claimed those participating in the orgy used nicknames like Spider, Snake, and Lucifer. Offended by the naked activity, Hutchison, according to her story, asked Damien to drive her back home, which he did, leaving Jesse at the orgy. In late May, Vicki Hutchison and her eight-year-old son, Aaron, met with detectives. While Vicki shared her story about the S-Bot, Aaron told authorities that he and the three murdered boys often visited Robin Hood Woods together and that on one visit to the woods, they saw five men sitting in a circle, chanting and doing what men and ladies do. Yeah. Well, he's eight. He doesn't actually know what sex is. On June 2nd, West Memphis police polygraphed Vicki Hutchison. West Memphis seemed to have a lot of faith in polygraphs. Apparently. Polygraph administrator Bill Durham reported that Hutchison was telling the truth. Oh, my God. Convinced by the polygraph results that they had their murderer, the police picked up Jesse Miss Kelly for questioning at about 9 a.m. the next day. Mind you, Jesse's father gave permission for him to go with the police, but not to be questioned or interrogated. And he's a minor. And mentally... Yeah. They tell Jesse there was a $35,000 reward for information leading to convictions in the case, and if he helps them solve the case, his family will be eligible for the money. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's... In a polygraph interview, Jesse initially denies participating in either satanic rituals or the murders, but Detective Durham tells another officer Jesse is lying his ass off. Wow. Do polygraph examiners ever get it right in West Memphis? No. After hours of harsh questioning by Gitchell and Ridge, Jesse begins to tell the officers what they want to hear, that he and Damien and Jason committed the murders. Later, Jesse would offer this account of his experience. Wow. Jesse says, quote, I kept telling Inspector Gitchell and Detective Ridge I didn't know who did it. I just knew of it, what my friend had told me. But they kept hollering at me. They kept saying they knew I had something to do with it because other people had told them. After I told him what the three boys were wearing, Gary Gitchell told me, was any of them tied up? That's when I went along with him. I repeated what he told me. I said, yes, they were tied up. He asked, what was they tied up with? I told him a rope. He got mad. He told me, God damn it, Jesse, don't mess with me. He said, no, they was tied up with shoestrings. I had to go through the story again and again until I got it right. They hollered at me until I got it right. So whatever he was telling me, I started telling him back. But I figured something was wrong because if I had killed him, I'd have known I'd done it. Well, no shit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, the inconsistencies that trouble officers, such as Jesse saying the murders occurred in the daytime when they actually occurred at night, or that they tied up the boys with rope when the actual murderer used shoelaces, are ironed out, and Jesse's story begins to match to the known facts of the case. Some five hours after picking Jesse up, police taped Jesse's confession. In the taped confession, Jesse states that while in Robin Hood Woods with Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin, he watched Eccles hit Chris Byers in the head with his fist and bruised him up all real bad, and then Jason turned around and hit Steve Branch. Then the other one took off. Michael Moore took off running, so I chased him and grabbed him and hold him until they got there and then I left. Jesse stated that when he returned to the scene minutes later, all three boys have their clothes off and are tied up. Then they tied them up, tied their hands up, they started screwing them and stuff, cutting them and stuff, and I saw it and turned around and looked, and then I took off running. I went home, then they called me and asked me how come I didn't stay. I told them I just couldn't. Within hours after securing Jesse's confession, Deputy Prosecutor John Fogelman appeared before a municipal court judge for warrants that would allow searches of the homes of Miss Kelly, Baldwin, and Eccles. 
By 10.30 p.m. on June 3, 1993, all teenagers were rounded up and each charged with three counts of capital murder. Jeez. At a press conference the next morning held to announce the arrests, Gary Gitchell is asked how confident he felt about this case. On a 1 to 10 scale, Gitchell answers 11 with a smug-ass grin on his face. Wow. Now, I can't blame him for feeling that if... I was the lead investigator and I was dead set on thinking we solved the case. I'd be a smug little bitch too. However, (laughs) working to strengthen their case to something beyond 11 on the 10 point scale, police decide to re-interview Vicki Hutchison's eight-year-old son, Aaron. Aaron now tells the detective that he had actually been with the three boys in the woods and witnessed their murders. According to Aaron's account, he received a call that night before the murders from Jesse Miss Kelly, inviting him to bring his three friends to the woods the next day where they would all do something. Once there, Aaron said Jesse, Jason, and Damien slapped his friends. I ran and Jesse caught me. Then I got away and he caught me again and he tied me up. I um, stayed there for about 40 seconds and got untied. Asked by Gitchell how he was tied up, Aaron replied with a rope. Aaron said, they couldn't hurt me because I kicked every one of them with a foot. What? Yeah. yeah. Like he said that they tied his hands up with a rope, but his Uh. legs were free. So he was kicking. Yeah. Meanwhile, he said his friends got stabbed and had their clothes pulled off. Then he said they cut off the private spot. From a distance, Aaron told Gitchell he watched as the three teens raped Michael, Chris, and Steve. While Aaron's story would strike most people as wildly implausible, Gitchell was pleased. He now had a second eyewitness to the Robin Hills murders. Oh my god. On August 4th, 1993, Judge David Burnett presided at a pretrial hearing in Marion, Arkansas. Burnett ruled that Miss Kelly should be tried separately from Eccles and Baldwin. Burnett also ruled that the state could introduce Jesse's confession despite defense arguments that it was obtained under coercive circumstances. The defense pointed to, among other things, the officer's repeated refusals to believe his statements, showing Jesse a circle diagram and telling him he had a choice to be in the circle with the killers or outside it with police, saying the killers inside were Jesse, Jason, and Damien showing him a picture of Chris Byer's dead body and playing a spooky audio tape of Aaron Hutchinson's voice in which he said, nobody knows what happened but me. In another important pretrial ruling, Burnett concludes that all three defendants should be tried as adults rather than juveniles. And mind you, Jason was 16, Jesse was 17, and Damien was 18. So Damien's technically an adult, but Jesse and Jason are... Exactly. Yeah. On January 18, 1994, jury selection in the Jesse Miss Kelly trial began in a one-story cinder block courthouse in Corning, Arkansas. In short order, a jury of seven women and five men were chosen, and John Fogelman rose to deliver the state's opening argument. Fogelman told jurors that while they might find errors and discrepancies in Jesse's confession, they were largely explained by Miss Kelly's efforts to minimize his own role in the killings. I think you'll find that he lessened his own involvement, Fogelman said, but the proof is going to show that this defendant was an accomplice to Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin in the commission of these horrifying murders. Dan Stidham, representing Jesse, said the prosecution of his client was the result of tremendous pressure for arrests in this case and the Damien Eccles tunnel vision of investigators that existed from day one. 
He argued that Jesse's so-called confession came when interrogators broke his will and scared him beyond all measure, which was true. He said several times that he was scared of the police to them. The first witnesses for the state were the mothers of each of the murdered boys. Each described the last time they saw their son on May 5th of the previous year. Despite the suspicions of the defense attorney Sidham that the husband, John Mark Byers of Melissa Byers, might have been involved in the killings, he resisted the temptation to pursue that theory in cross-examination, fearing that to do so might only anger jurors who naturally sympathized with the parents. Suspicion about John Mark Byers' possible role in the killings continued for years after the trial, fueled in large part by filmmakers of the documentary about the case. By 2012, however, almost no one believed Byers had anything to do with the murders. Instead, a new group of suspects emerged. Fogelman took jurors on a disturbingly graphic journey. Detective Brian Ridge testified about his search in the woods for the three missing boys and the eventual discovery of the bodies. As he did so, jurors could gaze at the bicycles of the three eight-year-old boys leaning against a wall at the front of the courtroom. Fogelman introduced into evidence more than 30 grisly photos of the boys, white, bound, and mutilated. Dr. Frank Peretti reported the findings of his autopsies as the jurors viewed more photos of these bodies on the autopsy table. Oh my god. Yeah. Like, why the fuck would you do that? Well, they do that normally. (sighs) And if they're trying to describe injuries and stuff, they will present these photos to the jury. Because it, it gives the jury a better idea of what type of murder they're looking at how vicious it is and all that other stuff inspector gary gitchell took the stand to describe the circumstances surrounding jesse's confession gitchell asserted that jesse remained very relaxed during his long interrogation then fogelman played the audio tape of miss kelly's 34 minute long confession the jury listened silently as the tape played on cross-examination, Gitchell conceded that Jesse's initial story contained a number of errors, including that the killings took place near noon and that the boys had been tied up with brown rope. Gitchell dismissed the error, saying Jesse simply got confused. That's all. Yeah, of course. He got confused yeah. because y'all kept just yelling at him and giving him these answers. Mm-hmm. Most courtroom observers expected the prosecution to call eight-year-old Aaron Hutchison to the stand. After all, young Aaron was, according to the state, an eyewitness to the murders, and his statements led to the arrest of Jesse, Damien, and Jason. Fogelman, however, knew that Aaron's account was implausible in numerous particulars and feared what Stidham might do on cross-examination. He decided not to have Aaron testify and instead called only his mother, Vicki Hutchison. On the stand, Hutchison told jurors she was motivated to play detective because I love those boys and I wanted to see their killers get caught. She described going to an espat with Damien and Jesse, but after a ruling by Judge Burnett that testimony about faces painted black in an orgy might be too prejudicial, offered a few other details that she saw 12 to 15 other young people at the gathering. On cross-examination, Hutchison denied that the prospect of earning 35k in reward money had anything to do with her detective playing. Mm-hmm. Which it didn't. It never came up that she was offered that or anything. It was just she came in and was just like, my boy, I got something to tell you. And it's just like, sure he does. Mm. With virtually no physical evidence connecting Jesse to the crime, Fogelman was left to call Lisa Sacavicius out of the state crime lab, who testified that a green polyester fiber found on a Cub Scout cap of one of the boys was microscopically similar to fibers found on a shirt in Damien's house, and that a red rayon fiber found near the bodies was also microscopically similar to the fiber of a red overcoat found in Jesse's home. 
The analyst admitted that the results did not imply either the shirt or the overcoat was worn by the murderers at the crime scene, but that it was possible that the fibers were carried to the crime scene via a secondary transfer. On cross-examination, the crime lab's finding appeared even less probative after the analyst conceded that many fibers are microscopically similar to each other and that the discovery proved nothing. So why did they even bother admitting it into evidence? Because it had to do with Damien. Oh my god. With that and a few bits of evidence that allegedly supported the state's theory of occult-motivated killing, such as the introduction of a book found in Damien's house titled Never on a Broomstick, the state rested its case. Oh my god. The critical decision faced by defense attorney Dan Stidham was whether to allow Jesse to testify. Jesse's low IQ presented a problem. Stidham feared that Jesse could be made to say almost anything in a grueling cross-examination by Fogelman. Instead, Stidham decided upon a theory of attempting to raise reasonable doubts about the prosecution's story. Stidham considered one of his most important witnesses to be Warren Holmes, a detective and polygraph examiner associated with several well-known cases, including Watergate and the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Damn. Holmes was prepared to testify that his review of the polygraph results indicated that Jesse truthfully answered all questions except one, a question relating to his prior drug use. Officer Durham, he believed, lied to Jesse about his polygraph results in an effort to scare Jesse into making a confession. Judge Burnett, however, thwarted Stidham's plans when he ruled that the testimony about the results of a polygraph test, whether the results suggested innocence or guilt, was never admissible under Arkansas law. Burnett allowed, for purposes of a possible appeal, Holmes to testify outside of the presence of the jury about factors contributing to false confessions. Mm. Holmes said warning signs, including having the confessing subject tell you nothing you don't already know, having what they do say not fit with known facts about the case, and having the story of the crime not told in narrative form. In the case of Jesse's confession, Holmes said all three of these warning signs appeared. Holmes said that telling someone they failed a polygraph test can lead to a false confession because they tend to view the test as a last hope. And when they are told they are lying, their will is beaten to a pulp, and then they just give up. Holmes also criticized the failure of authorities to take Jesse to the crime scene where factual disputes about the truth of his statement might have been resolved. After finishing his proffered testimony, Burnett allowed Holmes to testify in front of the jury only concerning a few matters, such as the fact that Jesse certainly knows the differences between shoelaces and a rope. Even more critical to the defense case, in Stidham's opinion, was the testimony of social psychologist Dr. Richard Offsha. Stidham hoped that Offsha would explain to the jury why coercion during police interrogation made Jesse's confession involuntary. Barely had Stidham began asking questions, however, when the prosecution objected, arguing that the matter was one for the jury to decide, not for an expert to opine about. In an in-camera hearing, Judge Burnett made clear where he stood on the matter. He quoted, I'm not prepared to allow him to testify that, in his opinion, the confession is coerced and therefore invalid. I mean, what the hell do we need a jury for? Stidham insisted the matter of coercion was distinct for the question of validity. In the end, Judge Barnett allowed Offsha to testify that Miss Kelly had given police a false statement when he could no longer stand the strain of the interrogation. He also told jurors that people who have low self-esteem or are mentally handicapped, too apt descriptions of Jesse, are especially at risk to responding to coercive and overly persuasive tactics. 
Offshow was not allowed to tell jurors, however, that in his opinion, the tactics used by the West Memphis Police Department overrode Jesse's will and resulted in a false confession. On cross-examination, Prosecutor Brent Davis quizzed Offshaw about the meaning of coercion, forcing him to admit that police had not physically abused Jesse or treated him in a degrading way and that the coercion in this case consisted mainly of a few suggestive questions. Davis's questions on the nature of coercion in Jesse's interrogation opened the door for Stidham to ask question on redirect examination that the prosecution had hoped would not be asked. Offshore rattled off examples of suggestive questions in the initial stages of the interview that he said shaped Jesse's taped confession. On recross, David asked one final ill-advised question. Couldn't a person always say, I don't know anything about it, he wondered. Offshore answered, they can, and sometimes they can get to the point at which they can no longer do that, and so they simply give up. Which is the case with Jesse. Mm-hmm. In the first closing argument for the state, Fogelman told jurors there is absolutely not one iota of evidence that Ridge and Gitchell have told anything other than the truth in this courtroom. There's no evidence of any form of coercion. What is the defense? Are they saying that the defendant was brainwashed? Is that what they're saying? Defense attorney Stidham in his closing suggested killing one human being by another is only exceeded by the state killing an innocent man. Finally, Prosecutor Davis, in his closing argument, said that the defense's so-called experts had tried through smoke and mirrors to make it sound like a person that confesses to such a heinous crime and admits their involvement and gives you specific deals of the involvement was forced to do so. He asked jurors to apply your common sense and do what's right. <sighs> Jesse held his head low the next day when the jury returned to the courtroom to announce its verdict guilty of first degree on all three accounts. In her account of West Memphis case, Devil's Not Arthur, Mara Leverett reports Jesse's reaction, recalled years later, as he heard the verdict announced. When that verdict came in, ew, I just knew my life was over then. In the penalty phase of the trial, the jury decided to sentence Jesse to life in prison without opportunity for parole. Asked by Judge Burnett if he had anything to say before sentence was imposed, Jesse answered no. Two weeks after the verdict in the Miss Kelly trial, jury selection began in a Jonesboro, Arkansas courtroom for the trial of Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin. Only the day before the trial opened, Dan Statham announced Mr. Miss Kelly made a decision last night that he is not going to testify against his co-defendants. Without Jesse's testimony, the state was left with a thin, circumstantial case, but it did have a helpful ruling from Judge Burnett denying a motion filed by Baldwin's attorneys asking that he be tried separately. Prosecutors could hope that the evidence tying Eccles to witchcraft, as well as some damaging statements by Damien, might lead a jury to conclusion of guilty by association in Baldwin's case. John Fogelman spoke first to the jury, telling them that the state would prove through scientific evidence and the statements of these own defendants that they caused the deaths of Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Chris Byers. Representing Jason Baldwin, Paul Ford argued that Jason Baldwin, only 16 when he was arrested, is not a troublemaker. He took care of his two younger brothers, getting them to bed, and in the morning, when mom is still asleep because she's been up late, and it's Jason who has the obligation of getting himself up getting his brothers up, getting everybody dressed and fed, and catch the bus and go to school. That's the kind of person Jason Baldwin is. Ford argued his client was in court only because police had disregarded statements and the physical evidence. You'll see that this evidence that they have 
has been twisted and manipulated and distorted in order to make the pieces of the puzzle they want to build to fit together. And you'll see that from their own witnesses. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it does sound like they're just building something that they want to build. Mind you, they never actually brought Jason in. They never brought him in for an interview, never anything like that. Wow. They arrested him solely based on the fact, along with Damien, because of Jesse's confession. Which, again, was, in fact, coerced. Mm -hmm. Because just because you didn't beat the shit out of the kid doesn't mean you didn't mentally abuse this already mentally handicapped person. Jesse even stated before they started recording that they were screaming at him that they know he had something to do with it and he just had enough of it. Yeah, he was over it and he was just telling them everything that they wanted to hear. Yeah, he was just like, fine, fuck it, I'll say whatever you want. So I can go home. Yeah. Yeah. He continues saying, lastly, you will see from their own witnesses evidence that will show that Jason Baldwin is innocent. Scott Davidson, attorney for Damien Eccles, used his opening statement to address one of the biggest concerns, that the jury might find his client guilty because of some of the strange statements and actions in his past. He's not the all-American boy, Davidson observed. He's kind of weird. He's not the same as maybe you and I might be, but I think you'll also see that there's simply no evidence that he murdered these three kids. The prosecution began making its case against Eccles and Baldwin in much the same way as it did against Miss Kelly in his trial, with parents describing the last time they saw their sons and detectives describing how they found the bodies and what they found at the crime scene. When Detective Brian Ridge, in response to a question on cross-examination about a delay of two months in retrieving a piece of crime scene evidence, said, I didn't take that stick into evidence until the statement of Jesse Miss Kelly, in which he said Val Price immediately asked for a mistrial. Price insisted that blurting out the fact that Jesse Miss Kelly gave a confession was extremely prejudicial and unwarranted by his question, but Judge Burnett was unmoved. There isn't a soul up on that jury or in this courtroom that doesn't know Mr. Miss Kelly gave a statement, the judge said, explaining his decision to deny the motion. In later testimony, Ridge reported that during Damien's long interrogation at the police station, he had claimed all persons hold demonic forces inside them, (laughs) made observations about the mystical significance of water, and noted that three, the number of the boys killed, of course, was a sacred number in the Wicca religion, which it is. Yeah. It is, but it has nothing to do with this. Mm Mm-hmm. Moreover, Ridge testified Damien acknowledged reading books by Stephen King, an author famous for his horror novels, a fact Ridge thought was strange. Further developing its theme of occult-related motive, Fogelman called Damien's former girlfriend, Deanna Holcomb, to tell jurors Damien wore all black and carried knives, sometimes in his trench coat pocket. She also said that he wore all black at first because he was going through a skater phase, so there's that. An officer who conducted a search of Damien's home testified that the search turned up 11 black (laughs) t-shirts, the book Never on a Broomstick, and the skull of a dog, to which Damien stated that it was a skull that he and his father found on the side of the road and brought home to clean because it looked cool. The prosecutor also asked Judge Burnett to take judicial notice that there was a full moon on May 5th, according to the Almanac, (laughs) a request the judge found appropriate. Delving into matters of the occult took center stage with the calling of Dr. Dale Griffiths, a cult expert from Ohio. Oh, this motherfucker. (laughs) Griffiths testified that the number three was one of the most powerful numbers in the practice of satanic belief. When asked on cross-examination whether the number three might also have special significance in the Christian belief system, consider, for example, the notion of the Trinity, Griffiths said, I cannot make that statement. Oh my god. 
Griffith said that the murderers of the three boys were using the trappings of occultism during this event, pointing to the time of the moon phase and the removal of blood as examples of trappings. Asked what significance the sucking of blood might have, Griffiths explained, blood is the life force and usually they will take, they prefer to have a child that is young, very young, and the younger, the more innocent, the better the life force. With medical examiner Dr. Frank Peretti on the stand, Brent Davis handed his witness a knife discovered in the lake behind Jason's house. Peretti agreed that wounds found on the body of Chris Byers were consistent with the serrated portion of the knife. On cross-examination, Peretti conceded that the Byers wounds were equally consistent with another serrated knife, in particular one belonging to John Mark Byers, Chris's stepfather. The knife wounds to Chris's genital area, Peretti said, were anti-mortem. In other words, Chris's scrotum was cut off and penis skinned while he was still alive. Oh, God. Peretti also told jurors that the autopsies revealed both Stevie Branch and Michael Moore received massive blows to their heads and that Michael's lungs were filled with water, indicating that when he was in the water, he was breathing. Defense lawyers got Peretti to acknowledge on cross-examination that many of the descriptions of the murder offered by Jesse in his confession were not confirmed by his medical findings. None of the boys were strangled, raped, or tied with any sort of rope. Because when Jesse was talking in the confession, which I will link all these in the show notes so you guys can read them, he was saying that Damien strangled one of the boys with a big old stick. So he pressed it against his throat and strangled him with it. And there's no evidence that this happened. Yeah, there would be a lot of bruising. Yeah. Especially with how much force you would have to put down on said stick or a crushed windpipe. Mm -hmm. The crowd in the courtroom gasped in shock when prosecution witness Michael Carson, a 16-year-old who shared jail time with Baldwin, testified that Jason admitted to him that he dismembered the kids and sucked the blood from the penis and scrotum and put the balls in his mouth. Ew. Carson told jurors he came forward with his story months after his alleged conversation with Jason because he saw on television how brokenhearted the parents of the missing boys were and because I've got a soft heart, I couldn't take it. Carson's explosive testimony and the thin reed of an overcoat fiber found in Jason's home was said to be microscopically similar to a fiber found near the bodies represented the entire prosecution's case against Jason Baldwin. The state's case against Jason was sufficiently weak that they had earlier approached his attorneys with a proposal to ask only for a sentence of 40 years with parole possible in 15 and return for his testifying against Damien. Jason empathetically rejected the proposal. He, his mother even went to him and she's like, I don't understand. Most people would, you know, take this and say something because it's, you know, you didn't do it. He's like, you raised me better than that. Yeah. It's not the truth. He had nothing to do with it, and I won't turn on him. So Good. even at 16, he had those morals. Good. Detective Mike Allen pointed to the spot on the map of the area around the trailer park where Baldwin and Eccles lived to indicate where in a lake divers found a serrated knife that the state now implied was a likely weapon of mutilation wielded by Damien on May 5th, 1993. On cross-examination, Allen was asked whether he in fact was claiming that the knife was the murder weapon. No, sir, Alan answered. I am not telling the jury that. Recalled to the stand for questioning about the knife, Detective Ridge acknowledged that the idea to hunt in the lake behind the Baldwin trailer came not from any law enforcement officer, but from the prosecutor, John Fogelman. Besides the disputed knife, the only physical evidence allegedly connecting Eccles with the crime was a trace of blue wax 
found on the shirt of one of the murder boys and a polyester fiber recovered from a Cub Scout cap that, according to Lisa Sacavicius of the State Crime Lab, was microscopically similar to fibers found on a shirt in the Eccles' home. The prosecution wrapped up its case with the testimony of two girls who claimed to have overheard Damien confess to the murders while attending a softball game. Jody Medford, a junior high school student, said she was watching the game when she heard Eccles at a distance about 25 feet say that he killed the three little boys and before he turned himself in, he was going to kill two more and he already had one of them picked out. On cross-examination, Medford admitted that though she told her mother about the overheard comment, neither she nor her mother bothered to report the matter to the police. Medford's story generally matched that of her 12-year-old friend Christy Van Vickle, who attended the girls' softball game with her that evening in May 1993. After opening its case with testimony from Pam Eccles, who told jurors her son spent the night of the murders at home with her, and in phone conversation with two girlfriends, the defense called Damien to the stand. Val Price asked Damien about his family history and his interests, which Damien said included skateboarding, movies, talking on the phone, and reading. He then asked Damien about his focus on the Wicca religion, which Damien explained was basically a close involvement with nature, which, not wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm not a Satanist, Damien insisted. I don't believe in human sacrifices or anything like that. Price asked Damien to read excerpts from his personal journal, which included favorite quotes such as, Life is but a walking shadow. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, from Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. I love, mm -hmm. love that play so much. And why he kept a dog skull in his bedroom, Damien replied, I just thought it was kind of cool. And why he had the word evil tattooed across his knuckles, Damien had a similar answer. I just kind of thought it looked cool, so I did that. Questioned about why he always wore black, Damien responded, I was told I look good in black, and I'm a real self-conscious of the way I dress. And so it went. The defense sought to present Damien as a teenager who might be different from most in West Memphis, but not as someone anyone should fear. Eccles denied having anything to do with the deaths of the three boys, testifying, I'd never heard of them before till I saw it on the news. Asked how he felt about someone being charged with murders, the defendant said, sometimes angry, sometimes sad, sometimes scared. I want to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. Your support would help the show grow so much, so I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash S-O-M-E-T-H-I-N-G-W-I-C-K-E-D. We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If something wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit glow.fm forward slash something wicked and support us any way you can today. It's dead simple and again will take no more than 30 seconds. Click the link in the show notes, pay with Apple or Google Pay, and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use. You can listen anywhere at any time. Happy listening!
the defense moved to presenting evidence raising evidence about the quality of the police investigation. Gary Gitchell admitted that although West Memphis owned both a video camera and audio recorders, they hadn't bothered to tape any of their several interviews with Damien Eccles. I wonder why. Hmm. Gitchell also admitted that blood samples left on the wall of the Bojangles restaurant on the evening of the murder were, as the term is, lost. Uh, Bojangles. Yeah, so, <laughs> so basically what happened with that was... There was a report that night while they were all out looking for the boys that a tall black man had wandered in the Bojangles restaurant and he looked really disheveled and he was covered in blood and mud up to his knees. And mind you, the Bojangles restaurant is less than a mile from the crime scene. Oh, oh man. But he also, and this this is also another note because it, it comes up, is that he had one of those uh, cheap casts on his arm yeah. from Walmart, the Velcro ones. Oh, okay. The manager called the police. The police showed up and they didn't even bother to come in. They talked, they took a statement through the drive-thru. <laughs> what? Through the drive-thru. <laughs> what the fuck? The guy was already gone by the time they got there. They didn't come in to check it out until the next day after the bodies were found. And they had already cleaned it up because they're like, what are we going to do? We have to run a restaurant. There's blood blood and shit all over the walls, the bathroom, everywhere. So they cleaned it up and there's some traces left behind and stuff. So the police came in, took the scrapings of the blood on like the grout in the wall and stuff like that. They also mentioned that he left a pair of sunglasses that it looked like he was trying to flush down the toilet. What? That, yeah, I don't, I don't know why. The manager said that the police took them as evidence. But now they're saying in court that those blood scrapings from this super suspicious dude are just gone. Are just They're just missing. Fucking gone. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fucking bullshit going on that night, huh? Uh-huh. That's that's really funny, too, because outside of, like, this timeline, that was maybe two weeks before I was born. Really? when this took place. May 19th, 93. I was three years old. (laughs) (laughs) John Mark Byers, the stepfather of victim Chris Byers, was called to testify about a knife he had given an HBO film crew working on a documentary about the case, and that later was turned over to the police. Byers testified that the blood found on the knife was his coming from a cut, despite the fact that he had repeatedly told authorities he had no idea how human blood ended up on his knife. No, but it was a cut. It was definitely a cut. And it was Chris's blood. Oh, uh uh-oh. A plan by the defense to call Christopher Morgan, a teenager who once confessed and later recanted to California police that he might have blacked out and killed the three boys in West Memphis, was thwarted when Morgan's attorney announced in a hearing before Judge Burnett, from which the press was excluded, that his client, if forced to testify, would invoke his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. Of course, that is exactly what attorneys for Eccles and Baldwin wanted to have happen. Now, with that, with, um, with Chris Morgan, he did live in West Memphis. He would drive around and sell ice cream to these kids. He had gone over Stevie Branch's house and asked for a picture of Stevie from Pam. Which she didn't think much of it because she was like, oh, he's like the big brother in the neighborhood. He's this, he's that. But after they died, him and his friend just like fucked off to California. Hmm. For no reason. At least seemingly. 
And then they took him in for interrogation and he, the reason they ruled it inadmissible was because part of the confession where he said, oh, I don't know, I was on drugs. I might have blacked out and killed them kids because he got tired of being seen on camera. So he covered the lens up with a tissue paper. So the judge was like, oh, it's not admissible. What? Press can't see it. Jury can't see it. What? What? Like, yeah. But you can hear it. Yeah. No, but they, he ordered the press and the jury out of the room while he was testifying. Oh my God. Mm Mm-hmm. So every single time someone comes forward with the potential of they could have done it, he's like, no, it's inadmissible. Just shit. (laughs) That makes me so mad. Prosecutors argued strenuously that Morgan's taking the fifth, which Morgan's attorney insisted related to pending federal drug charges against his client that might be vaguely related to the murders, would mislead the jury, who would quite naturally conclude that Morgan was hiding his involvement in the actual murders of the three boys. Burnett ruled that he would not force Morgan to testify and said that anyone who mentioned his ruling to the press or anyone else will be held in contempt, and I mean it. Oh, man. Yeah, he was just, he was bullshit judge, in my opinion. Honestly, the fact that he's just trying to steamroll this through to get Damien and the other boys focused on they're like mm-hmm. nope this is it this is the focus oh it gets worse and worse trust me once, <sighs> once i go into once we're done with this and i go into the actual official breakdown you will see how ridiculous this is this is already fucking awful yeah with what defense attorneys viewed as their best witness now off the hook they called as their final witness robert hicks a police training officer with expertise about satanic crime Hicks testified that he knew of no connection between sexual mutilation and the occult. Thank you. He also told jurors that we do have empirical evidence that listening to Metallica music does not lead people to commit crimes. (laughs) He described the phrase trappings of the occult used by prosecution expert Dale Griffiths as absolutely meaningless in considering any kind of violent crime. Thank you. Somebody was sent from the That was it. The defense rested. Jason Baldwin never testified, his attorney hoping that his client's low profile and the scant evidence against him would save his client. We wanted to just disappear on the radar screen and let Damien be the whole focus, Paul Ford said later. We thought if we didn't stir the pot, and they didn't stir the pot, what were they going to convict him on? Which I can't blame him for that. He's there for Jason. Yeah, I mean, that is his focus, is his client. Yeah. I'm trying to save him. On March 17th, the jury listened to closing arguments. John Fogelman argued that while most people might not believe this satanic stuff, what matters is what these defendants believe. Religion, he said, is a motivating force. It gives people who want to do evil, want to commit murders, a reason to do what they're doing. He's not wrong about that. No. Fogelman told jurors that when you see inside Damien and you look inside there, there's not a soul there. Val Price, the lead defense attorney for Damien, reminded jurors that the law required them to find his client innocent beyond a reasonable doubt, and after listening to the evidence, they should have plenty of doubts. He pointed to the blood found on the knife owned by John Mark Byers and the bloody man who entered a local Bojangles restaurant about the time of the murders, and the almost non-existent physical evidence connecting Damien with the murders. He argued that having weird things in your room doesn't mean you're guilty of murder. Thank you. Paul Ford delivered the closing argument for Jason Baldwin, arguing that the prosecution hoped jurors would find his client innocent by association. Take the blindfolds off, he told jurors, and look at this case the way it really is and send Jason Baldwin home. The final argument belonged to the prosecutor, Brent Davis. Summing up, Davis said, we have presented a circumstantial case with circumstantial evidence and it's good enough for a conviction. He told jurors, you can feel good about convicting both defendants. 
The following afternoon, jurors returned to the courtroom with their verdict. Judge Burnett read from the verdict forms the jury's findings. Both defendants were guilty of capital murder and the deaths of all three boys. Family members of the murdered boys cheered and hugged. Jason seemed to cry while Damien showed little emotion. Terry Hobbs, Stevie Branch's stepfather, told reporters he hoped both defendants would be executed. Those guys took a life, let them lose a life. He only wished he could have ten minutes alone with Baldwin and Eccles to do to them what they did to the boys. Which any parent would make that statement. Yeah. In a second punishment phase of the trial, the jury listened to evidence relating to aggravating and mitigating circumstances for each of the two defendants. After listening to several hours of testimony, much of it concerning Damien's mental state and statements he made to a therapist, the jury retired to the jury room and began scribbling out pros and cons for Jason and Damien. Jason earned several pros, stuck to story, exhibited remorse, and in school, he got cons for being Damien's best friend, his jailhouse confession, low self-esteem, and frequented crime scene. Damien got pros only for being intelligent and manic-depressive, for having a loyal family, and for sticking to his story. His long list of negatives, however, included satanic follower, manipulative, dishonest, weird, something to gain, blue kisses to parents, inappropriate thought patterns, and eat father alive. <laughs> Excuse me, what? <laughs> I'm guessing that's a statement he supposedly made to the therapist. I don't, I don't fucking know. Oh my God. What the fuck? <laughs> The jurors decided to sentence Jason to life in prison without opportunity for parole. Damien, the jurors concluded, should die by lethal injection. Jeez. After Judge Burnett sends Eccles to die on May 5th, the defendants were led out of the Jonesboro courtroom. Jason Baldwin was transported to the penitentiary at Pine Buff, while Damien Eccles began life on death row in the state's maximum security prison near Varner, Arkansas. Now that we've gotten to the end of that... Let's have a breakdown. <laughs> Going more in depth into each section, starting with the day of the disappearance. This is the early 90s in a small neighborhood where everyone knew everyone. I can't blame the parents like some people have, letting the boys go off on their own. It was the 90s. Yeah, I know they. I know the only rule I had growing up was to be back when the streetlights came on. And any time in between, my mom didn't know where the hell I was half the time. Yeah. That's just how it was. <laughs> anyway... These three boys were best friends. They were Cub Scouts that loved to play in the woods. Side note, one interesting thing that was brought to my attention by one of my friends that I didn't realize until she said something, I have never heard one single thing about the Scoutmaster. Not one interview, not one bit of info. I don't even know his name. Oh. Although I think this was a personal unplanned killing, I will get to that in a moment. Think about it. It happened in the woods. Each boy has different types of knots used to tie them up. Who is someone they know that would know about the survival skills and things like different knot tying? Not that I'm saying it was him. It's just suspicious. Especially with a lot of allegations coming from the scouting organizations nowadays. I know it's far-fetched, but so is a lot of this case. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Fucking hell. So, moving on. There were so many inconsistencies between timelines, witness statements that were stated and then recanted. No one being able to determine a definitive time of death because of the bungled-ass crime scene. The volunteers had already been traipsing around the scene, even after the tape was put up. You can see them in the pictures just 
walking all over. Oh my god. The bodies were pulled from the water at 1.30 p.m. The coroner wasn't even called until 3.58 p.m. What the fuck? So by the time he got there, there was already fly larva present in the noses and mouths of the bodies. Ew. And them being out in the sun in 80 degree weather, so that can certainly throw off the decomp. Yeah, really. The luminol testing that they did that some people argue proved that the boys were killed at that location wasn't done until six days after the discovery Ew. and wasn't brought up in court at all because luminol testing then i guess wasn't admissible for the bodies themselves not only were they submerged but their clothes had been wrapped around sticks and shoved into the mud what the fuck yeah two sets of clothing had been turned inside out as if they had been pulled off of someone struggling the other sets of clothes was intact and some clothes were missing altogether five socks and two pairs of their underwear were never found so like all of the socks except one so they only found yeah. one sock because it was the one that was inside the shoe that was floating. Oh. All the other socks were gone. Yeah, and two pairs of their underwear were never found. That's crazy. But all the other ones. So, like, yeah, it's it's the two boys. So, Stevie and Michael, their pants were turned inside out. And Chris's shirt and pants were just fine. Yeah, I'll, get, I'll get to that in more mm. detail. The bikes had been in the bayou near the crossing pipe submerged in the water. The creek itself looked like someone had swept it up. It was so clean that the only indication that the boys were there was the floating chute. Whoa. And there was not one spot of blood found. The luminol test was never presented in court because, like I said, it wasn't counted as admissible in that time. Stevie and Chris were determined to have died from drowning, but Chris was said to be exsanguinated and mutilated. So that and the fact that the M.E. said the anuses were dilated were indicative of a satanic cult sacrifice. I'm sorry. Which, what? if anyone knows at least a little bit about post-mortem activity, when a person dies, their anus dilates. That's just a fact. It's gonna happen to you, it's gonna happen to me, everybody. They also said it was premeditated, but if it was, you'd think that the killer would bring their own stuff to the scene, not make a snap decision like using sticks in the victim's shoelaces. Right. There was, as mentioned, some blue candle wax that was found on one of the victim's shirts that the prosecution argued matched with the candles in Damien's room, but it was never investigated after that. But it said it was a common wax that we use in candles, and so is he the only one in West Memphis that owned blue candles? Apparently. Apparently he's the only only person ever to have blue candles. <laughs> and there was supposedly seminal fluid found on two of the boys' pants, but the analyst said that the sample wasn't big enough to pull DNA from and that they couldn't be sure if it was actual semen because he didn't look at it under a microscope. Are you fucking oh my that God. thick? Yeah, <sighs> apparently. Bullshit. Any, I'm sorry, you, you couldn't pull a DNA sample? Bullshit. Yeah. I, I still, I understand it was fucking 30 years ago 30 years i get ago. it yeah it was 30 years ago but jesus christ yeah that's fucking awful these there's so many balls dropped all of them the fiber samples that were taken from the clothes the sacavicius analyzed also stated that it was a green fiber that matched damien's blue shirt <laughs> and the red fiber found was said to have matched the red overcoat from jason's house his mother's overcoat Oh my god. One, when asked why the green fiber matched with the blue shirt, the analyst stated that it was, quote, like looking at the water. We see it as clear, but when we look at the ocean, we see it as blue. I mean, yeah, but <laughs> you can see the ocean as blue or green. However, I feel that's a bit of a stretch. Especially I could be wrong. Fiber. I'm not an expert in forensic analysis. It just sounds funny to me. <laughs> it does. 
And she also failed to mention that the polyester fibers could also be matched with about a hundred other clothing samples from people shopping at the Walmart or thrift stores. But what do I know? Mm-hmm. She did mention it could be a possibility, but there's so it's, many It's other, a common match. It's yeah. a common match to common clothing. God. One of the hairs found that was on the tree stump and two others were found inside the knot of the shoelace used to tie up Michael. But they weren't tested until 2007. Oh my god. And none of them matched Damien, Jason, or Jesse. That's over 10 years later. <laughs> Those shoelace hairs matched with Terry Hobbs, Stevie's stepfather. Oh. And the tree stump one matched with David Jacoby, Terry's friend. The thing is, though, that the hairs could also be matched with 30 other people in the area. Oh my god. <sighs> And Terry never gave the police his DNA voluntarily. What happened was that an investigative reporter sat down with Terry in his home in 2007. And when he got up to go to the bathroom, she took all the cigarette butts from the ashtray on the table. (laughs) Terry did smoke, but we don't know that there weren't other people that left those butts there. (laughs) See, he had friends over at one point or something. So the police, unfortunately, can't point a solid finger at him. Not that they, not that I think they want to. They brought him in for questioning and we were like, your DNA matches with the DNA found. You could see that it was an exact match, but because he didn't give it to them voluntarily, you can't say that that cigarette butt they took the DNA from wasn't from some random fucking Joe. <laughs> Just stick to the glass of water thing. Oh, Just... almost forgot. Another hair was found on a white sheet that was wrapped around Chris's body belonging to an African-American, but that was never further investigated either. I mean, the boys weren't wrapped in sheets when they were found, only covered after they were placed on the bank, so I don't know where they could have gone with that. Yeah, I don't know. And they said that there were no there were no black police officers just that, that investigated random guy that. At Bojangles. Or, yeah, just the random guy at Bojangles. That's what they were trying to link it to, but it was found on the white sheet that was over his body that was post to them being so it makes no sense no terry had never been formally interviewed until many years after the murder they never took any samples of hair or blood from him like they had all the other people which i find extremely suspicious they took samples from pam stevie's mom along with all the other parents but why not him yeah anyway fucking question I'm, I'm getting too much into personal opinions here. Let me get back on track. Sorry. <laughs> Although speaking of personal, as I stated before, I do believe that this crime was unplanned and personal. I don't think that the stripping of the boys had anything to do with anything sexual. I believe it was done to shame them. I believe it was more than one person that did it, mostly because of the knot. Chris had a double half hitch knot tied to all four points on his body. On Michael, the knots on the left wrist and ankle were square knots, and the right wrist was three half hitches, and the ankle was four half hitches. On Stevie, the right side was tied in three half hitches with an extra loop around the leg to a single half hitch with a figure eight around the right wrist. The left side consisted of a white shoestring tied in three half hitches around the wrist to three half hitches around the leg. So I'm only going into that much detail about the knots and everything. I personally don't know that much about them, but I can tell from the description that they're all different. Yeah, it sounds like multiple people. If it was one person, you'd think that they'd have the same style of knotting on all of the points on the boys. Yeah. But it's so different, except on Chris. He's the only one that has the consistency on it. Right. Chris also was the only one whose pants were right side out. Also, he was the only one with no abrasions around the ropes, nor any defensive marks of any kind. 
So I believe he was either compliant or unconscious, which further plays into my thoughts of it being personal, because think about it. Chris was known as the defiant one. One of the witnesses stated that when she saw the boys and told them to go home, Chris was the one that was all puffed up and was like, you don't tell me. So what if he did the same thing to the killer, did the whole, you can't tell me what to do, and that made the killer snap. It scared him, and he instead thought either if he listened to the killer, he wouldn't be hurt, or the killer knocked him out cold. Yeah. I can see that happening. Especially with him being as defiant. Yeah. So he would be, if he was knocked out or he was compliant, which if he's defiant, I don't see him as that. So I would go more with the knocked out cold thing. Probably. It's a lot easier to do that, to take his clothes off, to time up, all that. Without struggle. Yeah, without struggle. As far as the general mutilation, this was proven by six different actual medical experts that this was done by alligator snapping turtles. (laughs) The creek was teeming with all kinds of turtles, so much so that the kids in the neighborhood called it Turtle Creek. One person even recalled when they were kids, they watched a possum that had been run over by a car and fall into the creek, had turtles swarming on it like there were rabid piranhas. Oh god, that's terrifying. Turtles, especially snapping turtles, go for the meaty bits on what they're eating. They go for the pieces that are dangling from the body. Yeah. And the ME in the court stated that there was evidence of tearing around the wounds. And not just on the genitals, but on other parts of the body as well. There was a turtle trainer that I actually watched when asked about the case on the supposed bite marks and abrasions actually had an alligator snapping turtle bite his arm and compare it to the crime scene photo. They looked identical. Walked up and he's like, have him bite me. And he was just standing there cringing the whole time. And they put a picture of his arm up next to the pictures of the boy's bodies. And you can see the same V-shaped pattern that you would see on a snapping turtle's jaw. Yeah. That. And then they also put uh, the body of a pig in the water with them. And they immediately went all for the genitals, all the soft bits and stuff like that. And they said, you know, after that, they're going to go after the lips, the nose, the eyes. Oh, God. This is, this is what I'm getting into. The abrasions and scrapes that the Emmy claimed were caused by the Bowie knife, which, hold on for a second, speaking on that, the Emmy said the scrapes were caused by the killer scraping the serrated back of the knife across their skin as a form of torture anti-mortem. I'm sorry. You know what kind of knife I'm talking about, right? A Rambo yeah. knife? One side is straight. The back of it is the serrated. Yeah. So apparently these evil satanic dumbasses turned the knife over and scraped the boy's skin. <laughs> That's some of the stupidest shit I've ever heard. Why would you do that? If you're using a knife, a Bowie knife, and you're intending to kill someone or torture them, use the sharp bit. I know the teeth on the back of the knife have a bit of a sharp edge, but you're just going to sit there and scrape it like you're trying to sharpen the blade on their skin. What uh. the fuck? besides the fact that six actual medical experts stated that the scrapes tearing and cuts were done by predatory animals post-mortem that anyone with any medical knowledge should be able to tell (laughs) i know i keep saying actual medical experts let me explain dr peretti the one that scared the shit out of the jury with its asinine testimony yeah so he was an assistant emmy never actually board certified also failed the certification test two out of the five times allotted and never retook it for what he said were personal reasons. Because <laughs> he was fucking sick of it. Also, fun little tidbit, Arkansas is one of the states where the crime lab is prosecution controlled. So basically, the ME was an extension of the prosecution, which I understand is a thing in a lot of the states. Yeah. 
which is sad. That is it, sad. It really is. I think they should be unbiased. Exactly. Through and through. So basically, as I was saying, the Emmy was trying to freaking argue that all the things were caused by the knives. Yeah. Not animals, which you could clearly... Fuck, I, I have no license in this and i can look at those pictures and go it looks like you got in a fight with a fucking angry cat or something there's no indication that these are knife wounds yeah no none because that wouldn't cause tearing especially no (laughs) the single greatest threat that was done to this case was done by john fogelman by the knife found in the lake fogelman got a tip from jason's mother the knife had been thrown in the lake behind jason's trailer now mind you she was never called to testify on that matter She's only called to testify where his whereabouts were. So, so yeah. Why? She also told Fogelman that it had been thrown in the lake a year prior to the murders. Fogelman stated in the court that he just had a hunch that the knife was back there. What? That's why he had a dive team search the area. Bullshit. Then he almost immediately called up the media and said, get down to the lake. We're about to find something. Oh my fucking after God. Jason told After Jason's mother told him about the knife this guy yeah then he took his divers and found the knife and stopped searching the area for anything else what a fucking idiot yeah no and then he they went in court and was like i just had a hunch also why did she volunteer that information that's my fucking question but the fact that she said it was a year ago it was too. a year prior to the murders and when they pulled it out you could see there's rusting there's other things <laughs> on, it, it looked like it had been in there for a long fucking time but because they didn't run any tests on it or anything they couldn't tell when it was actually thrown in there <laughs> so mean, he just took it into court and was like this is the murder weapon it absolutely is 100 percent because of my hunch <laughs> fucking retard i'm sorry oh, just uh, this guy this guy's fucking infuriating he is personally i think the emmy and griffiths are the two most infuriating motherfuckers i mean fogelman is a good yeah idiot they got a lot of idiots in this. Uh-huh. Oh, mind you, another another fun bit of information. He was also trying to run for politics. Fogelman? Yeah. Oh no. This was this was a bit for him to put in the thing of like I solved the case of the murders, so you should elect oh. me. Oh my god. Yep. Yep. Oh my god. Mind you, he also still maintains to this day that he did the right thing, that those boys are guilty. And that he will never change his mind on it. Oh, man. Yeah, he's the proverbial of that meme you see where the dude's sitting at the table going, "Do you know, say this, change my mind. Yeah. <laughs> on May 6th, when Vicky showed up to the Marion PD, she was there first because she had to get her polygraph results from the cops. See, her boss had accused her of taking money from her workplace, so the court ordered her to have a polygraph done. Then, suddenly, before it was even known that the boys were dead, she brought her eight-year-old son in and went, Oh, my boy has something to tell you because he was besties with Michael and Chris. Huh. She had she did bring him in several times after they were arrested and everything, but it was on May 6th, before they were even found. It's just... Oh. <sighs> I find it funny that she was only there first because she was already in potential trouble with the police. Right. Now her son has this over-exaggerated story about satanic sacrifice. Yeah. Also, Aaron was inconsistent with his interview. He changed his story multiple times, repeated statements made by Gitchell. During the second interview, Gitchell stopped the tape, stating that Aaron needed to use the bathroom. 
The tape was stopped for 35 minutes and then turned back on and suddenly Aaron knew details like how exactly the boys were tied up when he was incorrect before. Huh, that doesn't sound like coercion. Although through all of this, Vicky insisted he was home with her all night, but it didn't matter because he could now be used as an eyewitness to the murder. Even though he wasn't there. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, also, I can't forget to leave this out, before the official recording of the testimony the prosecution used in the trial, Aaron, Vicky's son, stated how he saw a tall black man with yellow teeth driving a maroon car talking to Michael outside of school on May 5th, asking him if he wanted a ride home. Hmm, who else could match that description? (laughs) Bojangles How about Mr. Bojangles? Mr. Bojangles. Never mind the fact that by 2004, he recanted his statement saying his words were twisted and force-fed to him. Shocker. Oh, no shit. And speaking on Mr. Bojangles, the officer that took the blood scraping from the wall admitted he lost the sample. And the manager said that there was a pair of sunglasses that the man left behind in the toilet that the police took as evidence, but the officer stated in court that they never got a pair of sunglasses and that the manager must have thrown them out or something. Uh... Moving on. Any fucking evidence that could have helped there, they just bungled all of it. Yep. So, after the boys were found, the rumors started flying that it was the satanic ritual, and there were already rumors of satanic cults in Robin Hood Woods, so people put two and five together to make three. (laughs) (laughs) Damon's juvie officer told the police that he thought Damon could be the type of person that could do this based on his background, also, side note, when Steve Jones and the other officers showed up at Damien's house to question him, Damien had already been visited by Steve Jones a few days prior to the formal interview. Yep. Steve showed up and told Damien how Chris's testicles had been cut off and that someone had urinated in the boy's mouth. Ew. And the reason they were placed in the water was to wash the evidence out. This was before the formal interview. Hmm. Where Damien gave supposedly specific details. So, based on the testimony of Damien's parole officer and the fact that someone else had come forward to the police to tell them they thought Damien was weird because he dressed in black, listened to metal, and was into witchcraft, they had their man. But they needed a definitive reason to bring him in besides just people thinking he was weird. What made police bring him in was the eyewitness statement of Narlene Hollingsworth, the aunt of Dominie, Damien's girlfriend. She stated that she saw Damien and Dominique near the crime scene between 8.30 and 9 p.m., covered in mud. She said that they were driving to pick up another family member when she spotted them from the driver's seat of the car. Her husband was in the car also in the front passenger seat, so he would have had a pretty good view himself, but he stated that they weren't sure who they saw. Now, this was hearsay technically, but the cops felt they had to take that into account. I can't blame them for following up on a tip. That's just basic police work. However, I am inclined to agree that based on everything I have found on this case, I stand with Jesse's attorney that they had tunnel vision when it came to Yes, they did. They fucking did. According to her statement in 1993, Dominie said she was with Damien and Jason that afternoon until around 5 p.m. She and Damien walked to the laundromat so that he could call his mom to come pick him up. They usually spent nights together, but that night they didn't. Still later, the prosecution argued that it was Jason, not Dominie, that Narlene saw with Damien. Because both Dominie and Jason were skinny redheads. Mind you, Dominie was pregnant, and she told officers that the person with Damien was wearing blue jeans with holes in the knees, which was what Jason was wearing. Yeah. So, that's how they put that together. Okay. But the Hollingsworth may have had a different agenda when making their statement. Their nephew, L.G. Hollingsworth's name, came up in several tips right after the bodies were found, and that makes him an unofficial suspect. 
LG was 17 years old and a friend of Damien. Damien described him as weird and named him as someone he thought could have done something like that. Some tipsters said that they heard that LG was washing the killer's clothes in a local laundromat after the murders. But when questioned, LG had an alibi ready. He stated that he was staying at a friend's house, a much older male friend. But whether he was there or not is hard to say. At first, his friend backed up his statement, but later recanted. And in 2001, LG died in a car accident, so we'll never get that potential confession. Whoa. Yeah, to mind you, to this day, Jesse is the only one that's ever confessed to the killings. Wow. Uh-huh. Damien did have a very severe history of mental illness, mind you. He felt he was so mentally ill that he couldn't work and filed for disability himself. He explained that he had all these psychiatric issues and described himself as homicidal, suicidal, manic-depressive, schizophrenic, and sociopathic. He does have an extensive mental health record that is 500 pages long. Jesus. In 1992, he was sent to a psychiatric hospital by court order, but that was because his parents expressed concern with his interest in witchcraft and devil worship. Again, Bible built. Yeah. Damien was never an actual Satanist. Not that I'm saying that there's anything wrong with that belief. I've expressed my opinion on that religion before in other episodes. Anyway, Damien also had a history in school of being violent and being mean to teachers and other students. He was defiant of authority, but I honestly can't blame him because of how he was treated most of his life. Right. He did have an interest in ingesting blood, and the court liked to bring up the incident in juvie where a kid cut his wrist and Damien grabbed the kid's wrist and sucked the blood from it. Damien does claim that the kid did this willingly, but I can't speak for sure whether or not that was true. However, if it is, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that unless the kid had some kind of disease, so that would be dangerous. It is a common practice for those that are part of the sanguinarian branch of modern vampirism. Whether Damien was a practitioner of that, I don't know. It's never been stated. And teenagers do some weird shit. But yeah. <laughs> we'll just say that. I mean, I remember being a fucking teenager. It wasn't that long ago, and I was one of those weirdos. It's mm. kind of hard not to, outside of the extreme mental issues. Yeah. It's it's really hard not to uh, empathize with Damien, because I yeah. was that weirdo that wore black, you know, and wrote depressing poems and manic depressive and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I was that kid. I wasn't violent like that, you know? Mm. But... When People he, have their opinions. Yeah. When he was brought in, he was a cocky little shit. Again, can't blame him. He spoke on his alibi that he was at home talking to a few different girlfriends. And the prosecution had a couple of the girls testify that said they never talked to him. Oh. Funny that the only one that corroborated his statement was never put on the stand. Jennifer Bearden, a friend of Damien and Jason, told the police several times that she called Jason on the afternoon of May 5th after school had let out. Damien was over Jason's house, and he, Jason, and Jason's little brother were playing video games. Jennifer said that she remembered that phone call because she was getting mad because Jason and Damien weren't talking all that much because they were distracted by the game. So Damien told her to call him later when he was home. She called Damien between 5 and 5.30 that night and was on the phone with him off and on until after 9.30. But the cops were just, nah, it didn't happen. Also, Damien's grandma apparently told police that he was not home from 8 p.m. to the best of her memory, but I never found any actual police record of this, so it could just be a rumor. Not stating that it was never said, but anyway, that the fact that his grandmother had passed away in between the time they got arrested and the trial. Oh, geez. So there's no way she could back up that statement. Right. It was right yeah. Getting back to the cops talking also, to Damien. side note, before we yeah. continue. Okay. Can't they just pull phone records? Even in 1990s, they could pull phone records. Oh, they could pull whole ass conversations. I'm going to be leaving links, like yeah, I said. Yeah. 
there there are there's shit that shows you could hear conversations between the prosecution and certain other people that i'm bringing up in the next episode but you can see whole things of what actually conspired like transcripts yeah i mean i don't know if they you know i don't know if they attempted to do any of that with damien and his girlfriends but i mean they should have because that was his fucking alibi (laughs) yeah <sighs> getting back again to the cops talking to Damien. So many things. When they asked him the questions of how do you think the killer felt and how they could kill the boys, and he answered them that the killer probably felt happy and powerful and they thought they could overpower the little kids and that the screaming wouldn't be a bother because they were in the woods next to a freeway, this made their alarms go off. But Damien was into true crime and the writings of people like Stephen King and anyone, in my opinion, with common sense would probably have given the same answers. I know I would. Yeah, really. It, it is. It's common fucking sense. Like, why do people kill people? Because, you know, one, they're kind of fucked up and two, it's a power trip. Yeah, because they were like, why do you think you would make them happy? He's like, because they're doing something they enjoy. And if you do something you enjoy, it makes you happy. That's just common Duh. sense. And he said this in open court and they were like, oh. <gasps> Yeah. common sense it's a superpower <laughs> mind you the officers never had damien sign any statements he made whatsoever of course not and like stated before they never tape recorded any interviews with him nor video recorded of course because that would be everything due diligence. was just based off of notes and you know doesn't that make it hearsay mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah no absolutely it makes it hearsay however oh, it's the lead investigator God. so he has to be telling the truth Ugh. Blech. one quick thing i don't know if you guys can hear it if you do i apologize it has snowed at the time of this recording and there are snow plows going up and down my road repeatedly so even though it's kind of just raining right now so what are you plowing yeah so some of it can't be blocked out and for that i apologize if it obstructs anything we say (laughs) anyway During his trial, the document that had Aleister Crowley's name on it was a photocopy of the original that the prosecution obtained from someone in the jail. (laughs) Someone? Yeah, so they they brought forth this piece of paper that had all these names written on it. And it had his name, Jason's name, his son's name, so Damien's, Damien's son that was born after he was in jail, and Aleister Crowley. And the rest of it was written in this runic alphabet or something because he said he was trying to practice different types of writing in the magic style. Which, there's nothing fucking wrong with that. The court allowed it because Damien stated that he wrote it even though the defense had no knowledge of the document and the judge stated that if the defense wanted to object to it they should have done so when it was offered into evidence. But the prosecution didn't offer it into evidence until Damien said he wrote it during cross-examination. Also, Damien's photo was never picked out of the lineup presented to any of the witnesses. Even Aaron, who claimed he was there, said Damien made him drink the boy's blood out of a cup. But couldn't pick him out of a lineup. Nope. The evidence presented by Vicky was never officially signed off on, or at least the police didn't have any documents confirming that Vicky was allowed to have her house bugged to incriminate Damien. And Detective Gitchell claimed in court that the audio recording of Vicky and Damien's conversation was unintelligible and could not be used in his defense. But years later, when Vicky recanted, saying she was a big liar on the stand, she actually said that. Oh, she was crying. She was like, I was just a big liar. She said that the recording was clear as day and Damien said nothing to incriminate himself, even when she asked him directly if he killed the boys and he responded, no, I wouldn't do something like that. I'm not stupid. 
So based on those presentations, the defense called for a mistrial to which the judge said that he was denying it because none of it was relevant. Oh my God. (laughs) My client was not picked out of a lineup. Irrelevant. There's no proof that the police gave Vicky permission to bug the house. Irrelevant. Like he was never recorded. The only things that are going off of what he actually said is what the cops saying he said it. Irrelevant. But it make just oh, that is <gasps> fucking infuriating. So the police coined him as the main suspect from these beginnings, and the entire investigation onwards became incredibly biased towards him. Mm -hmm. So other possible suspects were never investigated. Yes, they did interview dozens of people in relation to the case. However, I'm simply pointing out the fact that after the initial formal interview with Damien, the cops were pretty much like, nope, this is our guy, and we're going to find people to prove us right, and that's that. I think that Damien was just this rebellious, messed up kid that had an emo phase like most teenagers. And because it Especially was in most the middle- teenagers in the 90s. Yeah, and Come because on. it was in the middle of the Bible Belt, they needed someone to point a finger at. Again, I'm not basing this on opinion or personal bias. Yes, I was that teenager, like you said, Tori. Yeah. Picture the cringy goth kids from South Park. Pretty much that. That was me. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not a serial killer because of it. And I don't think he was either. I base my opinion on facts and evidence that I find and everything I dive into points to them not being guilty. If you have a different opinion, I welcome it. I'm genuinely open to all sides. And if in the future I'm proven wrong through without a doubt empirical evidence that they did it then so be it right but for now where i stand is that i think they're innocent because of everything i'm finding and the fact that they fucked up all the evidence just because they could yeah moving on to jesse jesse is the main reason they got convicted jesse's father claimed that jesse never really hung around damien that much because he feared him and Jesse did tell Vicky that he thought Damien was weird. However, it was noted that they were friends. In what capacity, I don't know. It seemed as if Jason was closer to Damien than Jesse was, but they all did hang out together frequently. There was no proof that they were together that night, and it was already proven through witness testimony, as well as photos and written documents, that Jesse was at a wrestling event 40 minutes away that night after working all day. <laughs> Yeah. So they like, had from they, the beginning, he was no, never there. Yeah. And even if, even if those other two, uh, Jason and Damien. Damien, they were seen on the side of the road, possibly. Yeah. By that woman, there were only two people there. Yeah. There was no Jesse. Yeah. No, but because he said that he was there, they were just like, nah, he did it. Even though they, people came forward, people that were at that wrestling event showed pictures of them posing with the wrestlers, with the date, with the things of him signing in the book to visit, of all the shit. They brought it to the police and they were just like, nah, didn't happen. It's not oh, true. My God. <laughs> oh my God. The police knew that Jesse had a low IQ. He had been tested several times throughout his life as to his mental capacity. He just needed someone to manipulate. Yeah. At the time of his first interview, it was measured at 72. With the doctor testifying that he had the mind of an eight to nine-year-old at Uh. age 17. As far as the police knew from the most recent previous testing done, he had an IQ of 68. This is fucking grimy. What they They did was grimy as shit. They knew he was associated with Damien. They even admitted that they brought him in on the pretense that they wanted to get information about Damien from him. And yet they claimed that this was not the case and that by talking to him, they had no way 
way of knowing he had an intellectual disability. Uh-huh. Y'all full of shit. Everybody, everybody who has talked about Jesse knows that he has these issues. Yeah. Knows that he is impressionable and malleable. And y'all fucking use that to your advantage because you're gross. If you want to get an idea, if you haven't seen any of the footage of how he speaks even today, think of Forrest Gump. That is the best way that I can describe how that boy talks. He's like, I was like at the police station and they was hollering at me and I was scared. That's how he fucking talks. You're going to tell me that you cannot tell that he has something wrong with him. Yeah. Bullshit. Detective Ridge even admitted that he took notes prior to the recording because they only turned the tape recorder on after Jesse said he was there during the murders. But Ridge says that he didn't write everything down and doesn't remember a lot of the questions they asked Jesse prior to the recording. Of course not. Jesse had so many different stories when he was interviewed. During the first few hours, he claimed they were yelling at him, as stated before, that he told them he was scared of the police, he had no knowledge of the crime, and he just wanted to go home. They told him he couldn't. Then they gave him the polygraph and told him he failed. After that was when they showed him the diagram, photo, and recording of Aaron saying, no one knows what happened except for me. Only then Jesse said he wanted to tell them everything. Mm-hmm. The confession should have been thrown out because one, it was proven he wasn't even there and everything he said was ridiculous. Yeah. And two, the officers violated the terms of obtaining a confession through leniency, the diagram, as well as waiving the 35K reward in his face. Also, they used his age and lack of mental awareness against him, and his waiver was not signed by a parent, which is against the law with a minor. The questions were completely guided the entire time, just loaded, suggestive questions. Something the police are trained not to do because it can contaminate the confession. And the second he mentioned Jason and Damien, that automatically tied all of them to the scene in the police's eyes. Mm -hmm. Even the expert that was talking on the... Uh, coercion portion of this said that the first red flag that should have been thrown up that they didn't even touch on at all was when they first asked him when he was in the woods and he said about 9 a.m like 7 or 8 then it was 9 a.m then it was and when did the boys show up it was noon oh oh so that happened around noon after school let out oh no i didn't go to school oh no they skipped school and it's like, no, they didn't. Jason was even in school at that time. Yeah. Je- Jesse was working all day. Right. Because Damien was father. a dropout. Yeah. So, I mean, so was Jesse. Well, yeah. no, no, he wasn't a dropout. His dad took him out of school because he wasn't doing well in school, but he did a lot better working as a mechanic with his dad. Right. And he was already 17, so he's like, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And Damien just dropped out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, <laughs> Jason was still in school. And it wasn't until they were leading him continuously because he was there for, for fucking 12 hours. All right. They recorded 46 minutes of it in total, which was split into two parts. In between those two parts, the second part when they took the recording out, um, it started with them saying... Oh, what time did they go down? Did you go out into the woods? Did the boys go out in the woods? And he's like, oh, I'd say it was about five or six. And that's only after they were, oh, oh, you were before you said it was seven or eight. Wasn't it seven or eight? He's like, yeah, it was like seven or eight or something. No, he said a.m. Dipshits. Yeah. He said seven or eight a.m. Now you're saying that he said it's seven or eight p.m. Just fucking awful. Oh, my God. The whole thing. Which, mind you, in that time, in that section of the country, sunset was about 6.45 p.m. Yeah. And he's saying that it was 7 or 8 p.m. And it was just starting to get dark. 
So that makes no goddamn sense. I mean, unless it was seven. Because 6.45, seven. Yeah, no, but still. But still, yeah. I'm sorry, I get way too invested in the shit. And I, I just, there's so many It makes us points. mad. Yeah. Jesse even stated that he felt coerced. He told them what they wanted to hear so he could go home. I remember seeing a bit about this. Uh, he was writing a letter from jail to his dad saying, Daddy, I'm scared. I don't know why I was arrested for killing them little boys. I didn't do it. I was just saying what I thought they wanted so they would be happy and let me go. Please, can I come home? Hmm. It was sad. Like, I'm crying now. That's what the really fuck? That's really sad. Now, Jesse did have a history of getting in fights, drinking, and huffing gas. But other than that, nothing much working against him. Same thing with Jason. Right. Oh, fun fact. After the interview, I say interview because the West Memphis PD didn't like the word interrogation. Mm -hmm. After the interview, someone leaked to the media. So guess what was in the paper the next day? Oh, no. Also, his confession was only supposed to be used in his trial, but the leak in the paper led to juror misconduct, and it seems that some people lied about what they knew about the case to be put on the jury. Wow. And they were discussing Jesse's confession outside of the courtroom, which is a big no-no, and something they were specifically told not to do. According to court documents, the jury foreman said later, quote, it was a primary and deciding factor. Wow. Uh-huh. The expert that the defense brought in even stated that his confession was a classic example of a coerced compliant confession, meaning exactly what he did. Repeat the officer's statements to make them happy. Mind you, the expert also did state that there was zero evidence that the case had anything to do with occult activity. Mm -hmm. And during the initial determination of whether the witness could be entered as an expert, the jury were ordered to not be present. And after the defense made a proffer, so proof of offer, why he could be given a title of expert, the judge turned it down, even after he ruled the proffer to be obtained. Hmm. I found out that the judge did that in almost every single time where the defense tried to present someone to corroborate their clients. Wow. Every single time. He was like, no, jury's not present. Media's not present. Uh, you know, it can only be stated in front of, you know, me and the defense. There's no... Because it's, it's yeah. useless. He's yeah. dead set on pinning damien yeah but when the prosecution wanted to enter one of their witnesses in a, as an expert they were given automatic permission prime example their mail order doctor expert on the occult mr griffiths the defense even pulled out a pamphlet of the university that he went to he's like it's one of these colleges right it's one of these ones where you read the thing as a call in here to become a doctor Oh. that's the type of fucking college he went to oh and he God. said that his expertise was based off of being taught by occult experts over the phone or fax machine and his ex also other experience came from the fact that he was a cop and his <laughs> classes were his daily beats in the cops thing oh my god stop <laughs> <laughs> so he has, that's where his his two-year phd plus master's degree came from Go shove it up your ass. <laughs> but the judge was like, I'll give him a, no, you know, a title of expert on the occult because in the state of Arkansas, you don't have to have above a third grade education to be an expert in anything. <laughs> he legit said that. <laughs> you are just showing out backwards. You really fucking are. You know that? Ouch. Oh, God. <laughs> So let's break that idiot's testimony down real quick. Only because he really fucking grinded my gears. That hurts my fucking brain. Yes, I appreciate and acknowledge the fact that he testified that there's a distinct difference between Wicca, witchcraft, and Satanism. However, 
That was the only fucking thing he got right. And frankly, I think that is the extent of his professional knowledge. (laughs) I think that's the extent of his common sense. (laughs) Seriously. Damn, dude. Oh my god. Every time, every time I hear about this guy opening his fucking mouth. I'm about to give you an aneurysm with this shit. (sighs) Oh my god. I need a sip of my coffee. <laughs> I'm mentally prepare for this or else I'm just gonna fucking explode. <laughs> Do you want a cigarette too? Oh. That help? <laughs> Probably after because I'll be so fucking mad. Oh my god. <laughs> Griffith stated that the killings had trappings of occultism because it happened on May 5th on a full moon. That it was so close to Beltane and Walpurgisnacht between April 30th and May 1st, which, as he states, is an important date on the satanic calendar. What? (laughs) And because supposedly Chris's blood had been sucked from his penis, this was a major part of the rituals of Beltane. Oh my god. Stop. (laughs) And in several occult books Griffiths read, blood gives power, and the younger and purer the victim, the more power you gain. He stated that it was a fact that due to Chris's injuries, it was an occult killing. The fact that Stevie had injuries to the left side of his face indicated to Griffiths that according to occultists that the left side is for the devil and the right side is for Christianity. So hold up. Hold up. I've I've heard about the whole left thing. They used to think that fucking kids that were left handed were were a child of Satan. Yeah. If Stevie hold up, if Stevie had cuts on the right side, does that mean we're looking for a Bible thumper? That's what it means, right? According to your logic. I wonder if he if he heard how stupid he sounded. I don't know, man. I because even no, even when they asked him that recording and probably shoot myself. He kept walking around the defense's questions when he was like, Do you think in your opinion, that you are an expert on this. And he's like, oh, well, my background. He's like, you're not answering the question. Do you think you are an expert? And after, like, the fifth fucking time of asking him, he's like, yes, yes, I am an expert in the occult. And it's like, no, the fuck you're not. (laughs) Griffiths also stated that per Aleister Crowley's teachings, that the number eight had significance, that Crowley stated that if you had sex from age eight or younger, you lose your magical power. (laughs) He never said that. Ouch. God. What? Oh my god, my brain. No. (sighs) Also, that because it was done near a water source in a secluded area meant it was (laughs) occult-related. And all of these statements, and in his expert opinion, came from the fact that the night before his testimony, he was shown a picture of the dog skull from Damien's room, a picture of his Metallica poster, and reading Damien's Book of Shadows that was written and confiscated a year prior to the murders when he was admitted to the mental hospital. The prosecution just sent him all this shit, and based off of that alone, because he admitted this in court, that he thought it was a cult. That Damien was a Satanist and that it was a cult. Someone must have hit him too hard or maybe dropped him on his head when he was a baby. Uh, Not enough. Getting back to Jason. The only thing that made him different in people's eyes was that he hung out with and had similar taste to Damien. Damien said later in an interview that Jason was a gifted artist, that he was the kind of kid that did amazing paintings, 
but he would get in trouble a lot in school, particularly art class, because he liked to paint skulls and album covers, and the teacher would get after him for not doing the assignment that she gave him. He, yeah, he was pretty much like, fuck you, I'm not drawing that, I want to draw skulls. And he was damn good at it. That almost sounds like my son. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like me, I did that shit. Yeah, no, I actually, me. I remember even in English class, because I, I that's, that's my forte, is yeah. English. I remember in high school, I convinced my teachers to all the book reports, all the, everything I had to do reports on, anything in English, to let them do to let me do subjects that I was interested in. So I was sitting there writing papers on like Amityville and fucking hauntings yeah. and, and true crime and other shit like that. And I would get A pluses across the board because it was shit that I wanted to write about. The second that they give me a thing that I have zero interest in, I would always fucking fail because yeah. I just didn't give a shit enough to effort. <laughs> right. So I can't blame him I for doing that. I used to get in trouble that. actually all the time in the, um, Middle school, especially for drawing weapons. You know, I, I would say, personally, if I was his art teacher and see what an amazing artist he was, I would look at it and go, you know, this, the assignment was still life flowers. Mm -hmm. You know, why don't you do something like draw flowers coming out of the skull? Right. Or something like that. So it still has that element to it, but right. it has your own personal touch on it. And give him a grade based on that. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what I would fucking do. Damien said that he and Jason talked all the time about wanting to get out of West Memphis. They knew they were different and they tried to avoid people. Clearly, that's motive for murder. No, uh, apparently. And the kid that testified against him, the one that said that Jason told him they drank the blood from Carissa's penis, oh, he God. recanted years later saying he was sorry and he didn't know why he did that. This kid was on so much LSD at the time. He said that when he went outside, he thought that the birds had cameras on them. Oh my God. <laughs> that everything felt like a dream. And the police knew his history and was like, oh, he's totally credible. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Side note, one of the juvenile officers that watched over Jason and his cellmate said that the night he testified, she let the other boys at the juvie hall watch the news because he was testifying, and they were screaming at the TV that he was a lying son of a bitch, <laughs> that Jason never said any of that. So she went to the sheriff of Crittenden County, where the trial was being held, saying that the boys were innocent, and the sheriff told her in turn, quote, it's this simple, we fucked up, and now we have to clean up. Wow. Yeah oh god damien's parole officer stopped fogelman in the hall at court during this and asked him if he thought this crime was satanic and fogelman straight out told him quote no this is not satanic it's just murder wow even though that was his main argument yep after the three got convicted chessie tried for a new trial an appeal based on the ground of newly discovered evidence that this evidence cast a doubt on the validity of his confession the motion was denied by the court based on the testimony of Dr. Peretti. Mind you, on two occasions prior to Jesse's trial, Peretti was asked what he determined the time of death to be, and he didn't have an answer. But in the Eccles Baldwin trial, he testified that he estimated the time of death between 1 and 5 a.m. on May 6th. Peretti also stated that the lack of blood denoted that the boys were probably killed elsewhere and taken to the scene, though there was nothing indicating that other than the lack of blood oh also the injuries to chris's genitals had to have been performed by someone with medical knowledge and a steady hand what do you, what do you mean because it's torn up 
Yeah, no, that's what he testified, though, that oh it was, like, precision. Yeah, that he himself would have had trouble as a professional doing this in the water, in the dark, in the middle of the woods. God, why does everything about that statement bring me back to Jack? <laughs> Every fucking time. It was deduced back then that it had to have been someone with medical knowledge to dissect the women the way he did, but it couldn't be a doctor because no self-respecting professional could possibly do that. Just like with this case, it had to be the outcast because no God-fearing man could kill the kids. Uh-huh. <sighs> oh my God. There's so much more to this case that I wanted to include so badly but if I did that we'd have a 10 hour episode and nobody has time for that (laughs) no so I will conclude this portion of the West Memphis 3 case with a semi happy ending attorneys for Miss Kelly Baldwin and Eccles each filed appeals to the Arkansas Supreme Court the Supreme Court issued a unanimous opinion on February 19th 1996 upholding Jesse's conviction Mm. 10 months later in a 93 page opinion the seven justices unanimously upheld the convictions of Baldwin and Eccles. But that was far from the end of the controversy surrounding the convictions of what people began calling the West Memphis Three. In 1996, HBO aired a documentary called Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. The film, with a soundtrack by Metallica, depicted West Memphis as a hellhole with residents blinded by fantasies of satanic cults and jurors unable to sort facts out rationally the film spawned a movement and soon a website dedicated to the release of the west memphis 3 wm3.org was established the film also led to a marriage Lori davis a landscape architect began communicating with damien eccles after seeing the film in new york city in december 1999 davis and eccles married in a buddhist ceremony performed at the maximum security prison wow Concerns that the West Memphis Three might have been wrongfully convicted continued to grow following the release. In March 2000, of the film Paradise Lost 2, Revelations was suggested that the real killer of the three boys was John Mark Byers. The Paradise Lost sequels followed two years later with an exhaustive analysis of the case by Mara Leverett in her book The Devil's Knot, The True Story of the West Memphis Three. Like the filmmakers, Leverett argued that a miscarriage of justice occurred in the 1994 trials. In 2003, Vicki Hutchison, who had testified about attending an S-spot with Jesse and Eccles, told a reporter in Arkansas police that everything she had told to the police a decade earlier was a lie. She reported that she felt compelled to cooperate with police out of fear that if she didn't, the police would take her son away. After a bombshell fell in 2007 after DNA found at the crime scene was retested and none is found to match the DNA of Eccles, Baldwin, or Miss Kelly, a hair found in a knot used to tie up one of the victims is, however, found to be not inconsistent with Terry Hobbs, stepfather to Stevie Branch. On the basis of the new evidence, John Mark Byers told reporters that he now believed the three young men convicted were innocent. The new DNA evidence failed to convince Judge Burnett that a new trial for any of the West Memphis Three was justified. But attorneys for all three appealed Burnett's decision to the Arkansas Supreme Court. Finally, on November 4th, 2010, the defendants received the first good news in their cases that they have heard from any court anywhere. The Arkansas Supreme Court announced an opinion ordering the trial court to reconsider whether newly discovered DNA evidence or new evidence of juror misconduct in the original trials justified ordering a new trial or exoneration of the three defendants. Prosecutors, aghast at the prospect of retrying the case, scrambled. 
<laughs> in his book published in 2012, Life After Death, Damien Eccles described his feelings in August 2011 as he waited for word as to whether Jason Baldwin would agree to enter an Alfred plea, pled guilty, and yet maintain innocence in the deal with the state that would result in the release of the West Memphis Three. He says, The prosecutor wanted all three of us, Jesse, Jason, and me, to take the deal or there would be no deal. Over the years, Jason had grown to love prison. His circumstances were not the same as mine. He had a job. He had befriended the guards and was actually looking forward to next year in prison school. Jason has also said previously that he wasn't willing to concede anything to the prosecutors. I understood that with all my heart and I knew he still believed he would be exonerated one day and walk freely through the prison gates, but the state was too corrupt to ever let that happen. I was trapped in a nightmare, chained to someone I couldn't communicate with. I paced back and forth in my prison cell, two steps to the door and then two steps back. Over and over and over I paced, at all hours of the day and night. I couldn't sleep, couldn't eat, couldn't read, couldn't even sit still. I wept, I cursed, I raged. To see home so close and yet still beyond my reach was pain beyond articulation. Jason finally agreed to the deal. He said later, I didn't take the deal for me, I took it for Damien. At a hearing on August 19th, 2011, Judge David Lasser Having replaced Judge Burnett on the case, called what happened a tragedy on all sides, and then Jesse Miskelly, Jason Baldwin, and Damien Eccles walked free into the Arkansas sunshine. Damien Eccles and his wife moved to New York City to live in Peter Jackson's apartment. As in the producer. Movie producer. Really? Yeah. They next moved to Salem, Mass, and finally settled in Harlem, New York City. Although it won't win him back 20 lost years and means constantly ripping wounds back open, Damien continues to fight for his exoneration. In his new life, he has gone paragliding in New Zealand with Peter Jackson, known to many as the director of Lord of the Rings movies, and become good friends with actor Johnny Depp. In a 2013 article in Rolling Stone magazine, Depp said to Eccles, You expect a time bomb, but Damien's so kind and loving and open to the possibilities in all the world. He's the strongest human being I've ever met. Jesse Miskelly is the one member of the West Memphis Three who has maintained a low profile since his release. He lives and works in West Memphis and is reluctant to talk with the media. Mind you, he also did actually get arrested in 2017. For what? Traffic violations, mostly. Just for driving long. <laughs> Poor he Jesse. got like 30 days. But that's the only real bad he's done. Other yeah. than that, nobody really knows anything about him. He's right. just like, fuck all this. I just want to live my life. Jason Baldwin, who taught classes to other inmates in prison, helped produce a feature film about the West Memphis case called Devil's Knot, starring Reese Witherspoon as Pam Hobbs, the mother of victim Stevie Branch, and Colin Firth as defense investigator Ron Lax, because he, he was kind of brought on mm-hmm. as, a, um, as a help to the defense to find more stuff, and you know, right. but he's not really mentioned in the court cases because he's kind of in the background. He was never able to come forward and say anything in court. He just had to sit in the audience Mm -hmm. he says he'd like to work on behalf of the wrongly accused and hopes to attend law school life is getting better baldwin says we all lived through this horrible time in our own way and got through it differently so now i guess all have a different way of healing as a final note to any of my lovelies listening my main goal in presenting this case is to find justice for stevie branch christopher byers and michael moore If you have any knowledge of this case that may help those efforts in any way, there is an open tip line you can call that I will leave in the show notes to contact. Thank you.
Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Tune in next time for part two of the West Memphis Three, where we'll be going over timelines, theories, and more. Don't forget to follow us on Anchor, give us some love on Glow, grab your official Something Wicked merch, hop on over to our Facebook group for updates on upcoming episodes, and follow the links to check out the documentaries and interviews we mentioned in the episode. Laters! Laters.